The Enviro Show with Nancy Richards. It is indeed the Enviro Show. It's a green show here on SAFM. Well, I'm Nancy Richards and I'm here together with Kim Winter and Rob Parkin to bring you a full green hour. And don't forget, if you'd like to join in and share with us your questions or your interest, let us know. You can pop us a, well, you can send us an email if you like, but why don't you just phone? 0892 10 2010 is the number to call us on. 0892 10 2010. Well, let me tell you what we've got to, on the show tonight. We're going to be diving into the sea for a short journey of discovery with marine biologist and one of the presenters of the TV series Shorelines. She's Dr. Eleanor Yell Hutchings. And then staying with underwater issues, John Duncan of the World Wildlife Fund explains why they want your fishing stories. In our forage feature this evening, we're going to have a look at citrus and oranges with an Eastern Cape uh, farmer, Dion Joubert. And then kind of a messy subject, this one. What do you do with your used cooking oil? Well, Craig Waterman of Green Diesel has some thoughts on that. And the last, but by certainly by no means least, you may want to make a note of this one, with electricity prices due to rise by as much as 8% apparently in some municipalities on July the 1st. Some energy-saving tips from Sarah Rushmere. She's of the uh, green, building, uh, green Building Project, I think it is, and it's the My Green Home Project. You might remember we heard from them a little while ago right here on SFM, uh, on uh, the Enviro Show. So that's what we've got lined up. And don't forget, once again, if you'd like to give us a call with your thoughts, do it, 0892-102010. Or if you want to follow us on Facebook, it's The Enviro Show on SAFM. The Independent Communication Authority of South Africa, ICASA, invites people with disabilities and their representatives to public hearings to develop a code for people with disabilities in relation to telecommunications, broadcasting and postal services. Members of the public and community organisations are also encouraged to participate in a process that will ensure the rights of people with disabilities are taken into account in the provision of ICT services. The public hearings will be held in various provinces of the country on the 11th of July 2014. For more information about the dates, venues and time slots for the public hearings, please contact Mavungu Makatu on 011-566-3429 or email to mmakatu at ikasa.org.za The Enviro Show on SAFM Well, it's straight into the water here on The Enviro Show this evening with Dr. Eleanor Yeld Hutchings, who is primarily a marine biologist, but she's also an education centre manager at Save Our Seas, as well as being presenter of the popular SABC2 uh, TV series called Shoreline, and so, in fact, she's uh, anything and everything to do with the sea is what she's all about. Well, we've got her on the line. Hello, Eleanor. Can I call you Eleanor? Please do. Lovely. Um, before we get stuck into your subject, just tell us how you got stuck into your subject. What makes a person become a marine, a marine biologist? Uh, well, I think one of the questions you might ask is what makes a little girl not want to be, be a marine biologist? Almost every little girl I've ever met seems to have some kind of connection and, and be drawn to the sea in some way. Um, but my introduction to that was actually a little bit odd because I started out more with an interest in biology and an interest in parasitology, so parasites specifically. And when I got to the stage of having to pick a, a kind of direction within that, the only person working in parasites in the department was actually a marine fish parasitologist. And so... By default, I ended up in that department and I found that, in fact, that was where I was meant to be. Huh. What makes a little girl interested in parasites, I ask myself? 
that, that's a very good question. Um, parasites are one of those strange things that I think it's the yuck factor. Mm. You know, if you want someone to be engaged or to listen to it, there are various ways of doing it. There are awe-inspiring animals. There are creatures that we feel a connection with. And then there are those things that make everyone go, yes, yeah, yes. And uh, parasites are one of them. It's well, fascinating. Well, 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 that is an interesting story indeed. And I wonder how many women are listening and thinking, I'm not so sure that I wanted to be in it. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I hear where you're coming from on this one. So one thing led to another. So becoming a marine biologist, it also, I suppose, in my mind, I'm thinking, hmm, you've probably got a wetsuit or two and you're in and out of the water all the time. Is that very much part of the job? Ah. Uh, that is definitely the romantic notion of mm. the job. Um, of course, with everything these days, the vast majority of most scientists or biologists' time, unless you've somehow managed to really hook yourself up with the ideal job, would be spent behind the computer. But you do definitely still get opportunities to go and collect the data that you'll later analyze, to do field work, to do monitoring, and certainly as part of the training, as part of your degree, um, you do that. And I do, in fact, have a couple of wetsuits lying around. And I have, yes, logged quite a few hours underwater and on boats. So that's definitely part of it. Do you, I mean, the sea, the ocean is a big place, was it 80% of the planet or whatever it is? Um, it, you know, it's huge. And I imagine there are many areas, whether it's parasites or whatever. Do you have an area of speciality? So my area of speciality was what I did my PhD thesis in, which was, in fact, the parasites of some of our shark species. So... Uh, I like to describe it as most people are worried about why sharks bite us. Mm. And what I've always looked at is what bites sharks. So it's a slightly different perspective. And the answer is? Everything. Really? Does everything have a go at sharks? So if you think about humans or other animals and the sorts of parasites we get, I'm thinking about ticks and fleas and tapeworms yeah. and all sorts of other disgusting things. Sharks have got them all too. They've got lice on their skin um, they've got worms in their stomach and intestine. They've even got blood parasites that are the same family of blood parasites that give us malaria and sleeping sickness. Oh, I think we're on to the yuck factor, aren't we? We're completely <laughs> in the yuck factor. So they're out to be got too. I imagine they're not alone. I imagine each and every creature on this planet has got parasites of some sort because that's how it works. Yes, they do. And in fact, the number of parasites probably far outweighs the number of non-parasites if you look at the number of individuals on Earth. The big difference is, I mean, I'm, I'm feeling I'm moving into sort of murky ground here, but the, big, the, the difference really is that as human beings, we tend to sort of attract parasites because of our lifestyle. But I mean, if you're a shark or a marine creature, your lifestyle is your lifestyle is, is as it's always been. Yes, and if you're a parasite, your lifestyle is dependent on a host. Yeah. So it, it really isn't too much lifestyle, it's just how everything connects. Well, before we get into philosophy, too much sort of watery philosophy, let's focus our attention a little bit on the fact that you are concerned with everything that's in the sea. You're part of the Save Our Seas organisation. Why should we be worried about our seas from your point of view? I think that's something that people don't necessarily make uh, kind of join the dots with is the fact that the sea is uh, in some ways the kind of blue heart and lungs of our planet. So everything, every life on Earth, except the possible exception of kind of hydrothermal vents, every other life form on Earth is dependent on the ocean. Um, it, and, and the ocean underpins everything. It underpins every ecosystem that we have. So I mean, I'm even talking about 
deserts inland or um, if you're a farmer perhaps raising crops in the center of a continent who's never seen the sea or thought of the sea, what people don't realize is that you are still dependent on the ocean being a functioning ecosystem. So, I mean, as you said, it covers about 70% of the planet, but it's estimated that over half the um, oxygen is in the air is produced by life in the ocean, and all the weather systems and climate is all directly influenced by and, and driven by ocean currents, ocean circulation, uh, phytoplankton dooms. Everything comes from the ocean. So if you are concerned about life, then actually you are concerned about the ocean. You just may not have made that link. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I suppose there's a large proportion of people, and I, I forget what the statistic is, you probably have it at your fingertips, of people who live either by the coast or at a river estuary or, you know, are directly connected. I mean, those people who are living inland who don't see it, smell it, feel yeah. it. Um, what, what is the percentage of people living along the coast, do you know? I don't know what the percentage of people living on the coast is. I do know that South Africa is quite unusual in that for a coastal country, the majority of our population is inland. Now, that is completely opposite to most coastal countries, and that's because of our rich mineral and mining resources and that movement. Um, but worldwide, I think it's in the region of about 2.8 or 2.6 um, billion people derive uh, either an income from or directly subsist on resources from the ocean. So, I mean, that's a, that's a large chunk. That's really interesting that South Africa doesn't have that sort of huge um, preponderance of population around its coast, which I can only imagine is maybe a good thing for the ocean because we're not so uh, less inclined to sort of pollute it? Yeah, so South Africa's oceans, while they're by no means pristine, uh, are certainly in a better state than many other coastal countries. Um, and that is partly because of the, the fact that you know, our population isn't largely based around the coast. It's also, in fact, due to our, our ocean itself, we have a very, very exposed coastline. Um, our sea is very rough. It's very inhospitable, so it's not suitable for easy access. It's not suitable for aquaculture. And so actually, although there is certainly some traditional and cultural historical use of the ocean's resources, that's very limited, uh, and that's been due to the nature of our coast itself. Oh, that's interesting. Um, interesting that it's not suitable for aquaculture because isn't that a growing industry across the world? So we may be not doing as much as we could be doing. It, it is a growing industry. And um, if you're talking to John Duncan, I'm sure he'll be able to, to tell you more about it. But uh, there are certainly lots of problems associated with aquaculture. So it's not the kind of magic cure-all that everyone seems to think it is. Um, there are problems with pollution. There are problems with genetic uh, flow. There are also, back to my kind of you know, first love, there are major problems with pathogen and disease spreading. Um, and then actually our coastline just can't handle it. There are only sort of two or three bays that are suitable around the entire almost 3,000 kilometers. If you do think about countries that do a lot of aquaculture, such as Norway um, with salmon, they've got very, very calm, sheltered, protected fjords. Um, but the areas underneath the salmon farms are like dead zones because of the huge amount of organic waste that's produced. 
Oh, my goodness, how desperately disappointing. I did think that uh, aquaculture know, was the way to I go. Know. Well, thank you for uh, exploding <laughs> that myth, I think. There Let are some positive aquaculture developments. Yeah. A lot of them are land-based. So hmm. the biggest problem is with sea-based aquaculture. So we do have um, wonderfully sustainably managed cob farms on land. We have all the abalone or perlamon farms. A lot of those are fantastic, and those are environmentally friendly. It's really sea-based aquaculture that is not suitable for South Africa largely and can be um, not as environmentally friendly as one would hope. Hmm. Well, Eleanor, you obviously know a huge amount about all sorts of areas of the sea, but what we, one of the reasons we got you on was to tell us a little bit about Shoreline, the yes. documentary series. And I think you have a very specific interest. I mean, each and every one of you have got a different interest, those of you presenting. What's your, your buzz? Well, I mean, biology, really. All things coastal ecology. And I'm interested that you know, you said that uh, it seems as though I really have a wide range of knowledge. I think a lot of that is down to Shoreline. Hmm. Shoreline did, one of the best things it did, I think, was to take people really from within their professions. Instead of Gavin, Normalunga and myself, they could have had actors and written scripts for them. And it probably would have saved them a lot of filming time because professionals don't have to go over and over and over again like some amateur scientist who's never seen a camera before. But it wouldn't have given people the ability to go off script and to interview researchers and to know the kind of questions to ask and to have that palpable interest and excitement. But what they also did, of course, is take people who had already specialized. So I could have told you lots about parasites, but not that much about the specifics of the rest of South African coastal ecology. So what it ended up being was a massive learning curve and it was really exciting, a really great opportunity to get to grips with so many different spheres of, of South African coastal ecology that I'd had really not much idea about before. Hmm. Gosh, coming from you, that's quite something. So, <laughs> so this, you know, this, the, the sort of spin-off was that you got lots of extra information. What was the purpose of doing it in the first place? Was it, you know, do, do you think there's a sort of a general level of ignorance about our shores? I think there's a huge amount of ignorance about our shores, in fact. Um, the first real inspiration came from a very successful British series called Coast, which was largely a similar model, looking at the different uh, facets of the coast, so archaeology, history, human habitation, biology, human interest. And I think that really what made Shoreline so special is the fact that it did take those and wove them into one cohesive story of our coastline. And I think that a lot of people, they may have had known one or two things or known something about one particular subject. But seeing them all brought together really gives perspective to how our coastline was formed um, and how it functions and how people have used it and how those all tie together, because none of them are isolated. And I think that was really lacking before. And then, of course, it was beautifully shot. Uh, I can't say enough praise for um, the cameraman and the team who shot the, the series. Mm. I think that what it also did was just give people real exposure to the magnificence that is the South African coast. Elena, what did you learn? What were the, the sort of real, you know, aha moments when you got home? Sure. <laughs> mm -hmm. Trying to narrow it down is quite a, quite a challenge. I think, though, that, and this is going to, it's not, uh, it's not a fact or anything that was an aha moment, mm. but what really struck home to me was that there, there's, a, there's a niche and there are not many people who can fill it. And that niche is between
between what we know, the knowledge, the science, the research, the amazing um, and quite innovative work that's being done and has been done, and the general public. There's a channel of communication that really isn't there, and it's it's quite difficult to cross that, but there are ways of doing it. And that, for me, that communication, that became... Such a, such a focus, and it really woke me up to thinking that you know, we can do all we want about marine conservation, but people aren't going to be actively engaged in it, and they aren't going to buy into it if they aren't aware of what it is you're trying to conserve and they don't have some connection to it. And so Shoreline was one of the channels with which to do that. And you know, the work that I'm doing now with Save Our Seas is another way of doing it. But that's what I took home, that this is, in fact what I need to focus on rather than, you know, continuing research, which other people are doing fantastically. But just lastly, and I do feel we probably could be talking for a very long time, just lastly, do you feel optimistic about the ocean? We hear a lot of gloom and doom stories. We hear, you know, whole uh, fish stocks being wiped out. Yeah. The sea is full of uh, some, tons and tons of junk out there, plastic, etc. Do you feel hopeful? Do you feel a little bit wobbly? Um, you know, if you concentrate on those, on each individual story, it's very hard to feel hopeful because there are so many, you know, wobbly bits. But I'm quite of the Sylvia Earle frame of mind where she calls this, uh, her words, the sweet spot in history where for the first time, not only are we aware of all the problems and aware of what we have done and are doing wrong and aware of quite how dire it is, but we also have the means, the technologies, the communication, the um, global connectedness to act on it. So, you know, in 10, 20, 30 years, it may be too late, but right now we do still have the chance and we do have the capability. So I'm hanging on to Sylvia's sweet spot and doing all I can to make people aware of it. Well, we're actually hoping to get Sylvia Earle on the programme at some stage. I think she's coming over uh, later on in the year, I think. She is, Yes, indeed. So we're looking forward to getting the sweet spot from the sweet lady herself. It's been fascinating, Dr. Eleanor Yield hutchings Thank you very much. I'm going to give out the Save Our Seas website as well as the Shoreline website if anybody would like to find out a little bit more about it. So, lovely. Thank you very much and enjoy. Thank Take you. care. Dr. Eleanor Yeld Hutchings. Well, if you'd like to find out more about Save Our Seas, it's saveourseas.com is the website. And if you'd like to know more about the SABC2 uh, documentary series, it's called Shoreline. Just check their site. It's shorelinesa.co.za. Shorelinesa.co.za. We're going to stay with matters under the sea because uh, up next we're going to hear about the World Wildlife Fund's Want uh, World Wildlife Fund? Yeah, Wildlife Wildlife Fund. It's so difficult to say that. But what they're wanting are your fishing stories. And I think that's for the purposes of populating their Fish for Life program, which is what, you might well ask. Well, we have on the line Senior Manager Marine Program, uh, John Duncan, to tell us all about it. Hi, John. Hi, Nancy. Were you listening to what Eleanor had to say? Yes, I did catch the last few minutes. Of yes, the yes, there was good news and bad news. But let's concentrate on the good news. What your World Wildlife Fund, you're looking for people's fishing stories. It's a sort of citizen science project. What are you wanting to find out? So, so our Fish for Life project is, is one which we're just uh, getting off the ground, really, at the moment. And, and really what it is, it's recognition that um, the average citizen or, or recreational fisher has so much knowledge and so many stories to tell um, and that they're not really being captured anywhere and certainly not within any of the kind of academic or scientific literature. 
Um, so, so really, what a Fish for Life project is about is it's about engaging citizens, kind of in line with what Eleanor was saying, and getting people involved in conservation and and, and really the collection of data. Um, and and so our, our Fish for Life project has, has has three different kind of aspects in which we are looking to engage um, what we're calling citizen scientists. But in this instance, it's really primarily focused on the recreational fisher. Um, and and the, the, the three platforms are, are, are really one is is what's called the iSpot platform, which is already um, online um, that people can go to with their, their pictures of. Uh, actually, any type of animal or plant in South Africa that they know of, um, and you know, upload it there and help get get it identified. And obviously, what that does over time is it develops a large kind of atlas of all the different species around um, the country. But but more specifically, um, in terms of our project, we're looking at populating the fish side of that thing. So you've got um, people uploading pictures of all of their fish and help getting uh, those fish identified and developing kind of a fish atlas of the whole of the South African mm. coast. Mm. It's, it's a little bit more difficult with fish, isn't it? I've heard of the bird atlas where people take pics of birds, but, I mean, you have to wait until the fish is out of the water before you can shoot it. So the poor thing's pretty much dead by the time you've taken the pic. Well, no, that's, that's not, not necessarily the case. Uh, and, I mean, I, I say we, we're targeting recreational fishes, but, you know, the, the iSpot platform is also targeted at um, recreational divers who are also uploading a lot of photos. Mm-hmm. So, I mean... If you were to go to the the website now um, you, and, and you go to the fish category, you'd see a lot of the photos are actually you know, underwater shots of all of the different fish uh, at the moment. Um, but but that's where the recreational angler can very much uh, catch and release his fish. And, and the majority of recreational anglers nowadays, in terms of the, at least the, you know, many of the competitive ones and the responsible ones, do participate in catch and release projects uh, rather than catch and kill, so to speak. Um yeah. Yeah, no, I was just going to backtrack a little bit because you were talking about iSpot. The iSpot platform is, is one platform. Other platforms? So the other platforms are still in development, but um, they're, they're, they're two quite exciting programs. One is because uh, we're kind of calling iCatch, which is really looking at developing um, an online web-based catch monitoring system, where, which the idea is, is that a re- recreational fishers can help populate um, the site to say how many fish they caught and and where they caught them and over time we'd ho- hopefully get an idea of abundance of some of the kind of key recreational uh, fish species um, which can feed into um, scientific uh, kind of stock assessments to give us an idea of where the where the problems are with some of these species um, and then lastly I think one of the the more exciting projects for the kind of um, I suppose average man in the street is, is is a project called Fish Tree, which is really about getting people to upload their historical photographs of, of fish, um, and and this is really targeted at the kind of uh, people who were fishing maybe pre 1970s or you know whose grandfathers were fishing in those days, and um, uploading their photographs. And, and and what we're doing really is looking at comparison between what what there was then and what there is now and seeing what we can um, establish from that. And I mean, there have been fantastic studies globally showing the, the, the difference in distribution and, the, and size of many of the common fish species um, from, from then to now. And that's really helped give us an idea of what kind of changes have been out there. 
Wow, fishery, that's really fun. <laughs> in fact, it makes me think of there's a museum in Hermanus, I think, where they've got uh, all sorts of pictures of guys with, you know, with massive great big fish. And I think, sis, you know, that's really terrible. They should have let it let it go. And I'm sure that that sort of fishing that people were doing back then wouldn't be legal now. Um, yeah, I think I think it's fair to say that in the sense that I think recreational fishers back then were pretty unaware, I suppose, of the impact yeah, yeah. Um, that we ha- we had um, on the oceans, and, and there was no such thing as a bag limit back then. Yeah. and fishers could take as much as their boat could hold. Um, whereas nowadays, you know, recreational fishers have a bag limit of, of ten fish maximum. So things certainly have changed. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, Hermanus, they had sort of whaling stations and all sorts of things, didn't they? Um, Mm. Just going back then to what you're hoping, what sort of data you're wanting to collect, you know, we all know the stories about, well, it was this big or maybe it was that big. Do you actually want photographs of people with the catch that, you know, catch that's gone back into the water or or underwater shots? And how are you going to collate that? What will it really tell you? So so it, it really differs depending on the different platforms. Um, the iSpot platform is really about uh, distribution records. So we, we would like to know what species uh, were seen or, or captured um, where. You know, and, and you use that to populate a, a South African fish atlas, which uh, gives us a good idea of, of different fish distributions. And it might, also, I think, I mean, just understanding where a species exists and tracking whether that has changed over time. So you can imagine if the project is hopefully still running in 50 years' time and we see that there are no longer any records uploaded for a certain species in a certain area, we will be able to track a change in distribution, which will also give us an idea of whether uh, something like climate change is impacted on that mm. species. And then moving to something like the, the iCatch uh, project, although it's not up and running yet, what we'd probably be looking at there is, is getting an idea of exactly you know, the size of the species, the weight, how many were caught, um, how, much, how long you fished for, an idea of kind of effort used to catch the fish. Um, and obviously, again, what species was caught. Um, and that's all about that data would be used to kind of understand essentially whether our fish stocks are increasing or decreasing because you can imagine if you know how hard you fished um, and you can compare that over the years saying that I fished for an hour in 2010 and I caught five of this fish um, and then I fished again in 2040 and I caught 10 of these fish, you can get a good idea of whether things are getting better or worse. Well, as part of the WWF, aren't you the SASI people as well, the South African Sustainable Seafood Initiative? So you presumably keeping a bit of an eye on what people are catching anyway. Yeah, so SASI is one of our programs that we run, um, and that's more focused really on consumer awareness Mm. uh, around sustainable seafood. Um, we as, as WWF aren't responsible for the actual kind of monitoring of catches, which is really a, a government's responsibility. Um, but we certainly, you know, the stock status does go into deciding on what kind of uh, sassy color the species gets, so whether it's green, orange, or red. Um, but the, the important thing I think to recognize is that sassy uh, really works predominantly is looking at, at, at commercial species, which are caught by commercial fishers. Yeah. And um, I think the reason why we're focusing on the kind of Fish for Life project as a, as a new avenue is because the recreational angling sector is, is potentially a massive sector. Potentially, uh, I mean, depending on which figures you, you want to quote, but uh, it's estimated to be up to 850,000 fishers around South Africa who participate in the recreational sector. 
Um, and, and you can imagine the kind of the impact um, that that kind of a size of group would have on, on fish stocks. Mm-hmm. And um, to date, there hasn't been a lot of work done to really try and bring the recreational angling sector together and to also understand its, um, its, its impact and how we can work better with them in terms of developing responsible angling practices. Well, let me give out your details, John, because hopefully there'll be a big spike of interest um, once once this has gone up. Because it sounds, if you're certainly if you're a fisherman, you could be doing a lot of good for you know the protection of of all our species. So let me give the details. Presumably, wwf.org.za will lead people there. But the iSpot, it's iSpot.org.za. That's it. Yes. Excellent. Well, yeah. thank you. Thank you very much, John. Perhaps you'll come back another day and tell us a little bit more about aquaculture. We got, had some rather gloomy stories from Eleanor there, but we'll leave that for another day. <laughs> sure. Thanks, Thanks for lot. having me, Nancy. Take care. Cheers. John Duncan, he's uh, the manager of the marine program at WWF. And if you would like to know more, check their site. It's www.org.za or ispot. That's I, the letter I, spot.org.za. Stay with us. The Enviro Show. Well, moving on from fishes and all things watery, we're moving to something slightly more uh, land-based. Time for us to go foraging for information about foodstuffs and products that are out there. And don't forget, if there's a product or a foodstuff that you'd like to know a little bit more, let us know. Pop us a mail, enviro at at safm.co.za. But today is oranges that we're looking at, oranges and the citrus industry in general. And it's kind of in the light of the recent issue about the black spot fungus that contaminates uh, citrus fruit. And it seems that it's now the onus is very much on the farmers to make sure that it doesn't leave our shores, because I think we're getting a lot of flack from overseas. Well, we thought we'd find out a little bit more about the whole uh, citrus industry. And we spoke earlier to a gentleman by the name of Dion Joubert, who's a citrus farmer in the Eastern Cape. I'm involved in the citrus industry for about 22 years um, and I'm managing a, a citrus farm and the packing operation for, for an overseas company called Unifruti uh, for the last 15 years. And are you dealing only in oranges or other citrus fruits? All The whole range of citrus from the oranges, which is the early ones are the navels and the later ones are the valentias. Uh, through all the, the, the soft citrus types, which are clementines, satsumas, novas, and then, then there's another range called the light mandarins as well. And then uh, the other big one for us are lemons. We, we're exporting a lot of lemons as well. How big is the citrus industry in South Africa? Uh, the citrus industry uh, exports in the order of 110 million cartons. Garden weighs about 15 kilograms. Every year? Every year, annually, yeah. Wow, that's a lot, isn't it? Yeah. What percentage do we keep here? I mean, it sounds like we're exporting pretty much all that we've got. How much do we produce for our own consumption? Of the fruit that we produce, um, approximately 70 to 75% is exported. And then I would say 10 to 20% is going to the juice factories. And another 10, 10%, maybe 15% is going to, uh, well, getting sold locally, um, either to the supermarkets, the open markets, and then, then quite a big uh, percentage is sold on the, on the informal market. So are you saying that between only between 10 to 15% of the total amount that's grown in this country is what we see on our shelves? 
Yeah, I would say so. In in most cases, the local industry is that's enough for the local industry. Yes, you know the the local industry cannot really absorb more than that. We must be producing hundreds and thousands and millions then of 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 tons or whatever because it seems that there's never a shortage. I mean, come citrus season, it seems that there are oranges and nachis and satsumas everywhere. Well, that's right. You know, the quantities are are, are massive. The reason why such a big percentage is exported is, is that's where, you know, you, the, the real money lies. Uh, the, if you compare the price with the, of, the, of the exported fruit on a per kilogram basis versus the local fruit, um, it is just, uh, the export price is just much higher. That's why we're focusing on the export uh, uh, market. Well, very sensible. Yeah. Do we produce particularly good citrus fruit in this country, and what other countries are our biggest competition in that school, on that score? Uh, in the southern hemisphere, South Africa rules completely. Um, we uh, we do approximately eighty percent of the southern hemisphere oranges. So, so we are very, very strong from a summer, so, southern hemisphere perspective. We are the either the second or the third largest exporter of citrus. In other words, these countries are producing more citrus than us, but they're exporting less than us because the local consumption is much higher. Uh, so, so from an export point of view, um, uh, the South African citrus industry is really a very strong industry. Mm, it certainly sounds like it. Yep. It seems a pity, though, that we don't consume more because, I mean, it always seems to me a wonderful coincidence that citrus fruit comes out at, in winter when everybody is, you know, at, at their sickest. And there we have naturally growing the answer. Um, could we not? Could we be increasing our local demand? Um, yes, I would say so. It's uh, oranges are during, say, from May until October is 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 readily available. Most of the most of the, the South African outlets are are fully supplied or oversupplied during mm-hmm. that period. You know, so the only way of of increasing local consumption is to um, is is to increase to have more people eating oranges. There's quite a big consumption, but I think it can get bigger. Yes, maybe somebody needs a really good marketing drive because it would be in everybody's interest. But given that we are such huge orange growers and we can't afford for anything to go wrong, what are the biggest challenges facing facing the citrus industry? You all know about the citrus black spot in Europe. Uh, That is, it it makes our, our production operation much more expensive and much more complicated. Uh, so that is that is a threat which has now all of a sudden be- become a major issue for us. Just explain citrus black spot. Is it a disease? What is it? it? it it's a fungal disease causing a small little black spot on on the fruit. Now it's around in South Africa since 1930, um, and we exported it to Europe since about well, most probably during the 1940s. So there's always a little bit of of fruit with one or two small black spots on it which which got exported over the years now the european uh, union specifically spain is, is is concerned that that citrus black spot can establish in spain but from a climatic point of view it's impossible it cannot uh, establish in spain so you know and if if it was able to establish the well call it 70 years later it still didn't establish
So that is something that we don't need to be exporting as our black spot. But what causes it? And are sort of weather conditions favourable or unfavourable, you know, as, they, as the conditions change? Is this good or not so good for the industry? It's a disease which is in the sort of summer rainfall areas of the world. It's, it's all over the world except basically in, in, in Europe because I've got the winter rainfall. Uh, we in the Western Cape, for example, doesn't have it because it's, it's a Mediterranean rainfall type. It, so it cannot establish in, in Mediterranean areas. You know, what now happened is, is that, that we are starting to developing and focusing on, on, on other markets. So percentage-wise, Europe is still getting a large chunk of the fruit in the order of, of the crop, in the order of 40% of the crop. But um, we are also starting to develop more countries um, uh, especially in the Far East region. Sort of soil conditions to oranges like, I mean, are they a very thirsty crop, given that we have uh, drought issues in some areas? Uh, citrus can be produced over a, a quite a wide range of, of soils, but preferably not too heavy, preferably, you know, sandy soil or, or, or a, a sandy loam type of soil. does use quite a lot of water, but... In most orchards in South Africa, it, it's, it's produced with, with drip irrigation. And, and, and with drip irrigation, you can, uh, you know, the, the consumption or the, 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 the water usage is, is, is actually not that mm. high. Mm. If anybody wanted to um, grow their own orange tree, is it possible to do so from the pips? Look, um, <laughs> there's very often people asking, must I grow my own citrus tree in the garden? It's normally a lemon tree in my own garden. My standard answer is you can grow your own tree, but rather go to, to, to the supermarket and buy yourself a lemon or bag of oranges or whatever, uh, because in most cases, uh, in, in gardens, it's over uh, over irrigated, so you kill the tree by giving it too much water, um, and then you you some quite often get the, the, uh, insects and so on that's attacking the tree, and and it's more a hassle than than worth it to have your own tree in the garden. Just lastly, Dion, if one has perhaps lucky enough to have any sort of citrus tree in your garden, be careful not to overwater it. But is there an indication? Usually, you can sometimes see if there's a problem by looking at the leaf. What are the diseases that might attack the leaf that might affect your fruit? Look, in, in, in a South African situation, what you'll normally see is you'll normally have some other insect that, that's attacking it, and this is. The, the, the common ones are one called red skull. It's a little uh, skull insect. And then uh, also something like mealybug, which is a little, little whitish uh, insect. And, and then ants as well. You know, quite often if you have ants in the garden, you will see a lot of ants running up and down the tree. And that's, that's actually promoting other, you know, the bad insects like, like red skull and mealybug. Mm-hmm. Uh, diseases, not really, you know, but what you quite often see on a tree in a garden is, is shortage symptoms of some kind. Normally the leaves are a little bit yellow um, or so, and that's quite often related to, uh, to over-irrigation. You, you basically give the tree too much water um, uh, and you, you kill the roots and then there's not enough roots to... to Uh, take up enough nutrients to feed the tree properly. Well, we certainly know a whole lot more about the citrus industry. 
Just lastly, I believe that there's been some issues around the citrus industry just recently. Is there, is, is what was the problem and has it now been solved? The big issue are the citrus black spot. But uh, I, I just want to say that around the citrus black spot, there's quite a lot of progress made with the European Union. You know, a lot of the issues are resolved. You know, uh, they want very strict measurements from our side and so on, and we comply. So um, even though it is a big issue, we are still able to export around 30 to 40 percent of the total citrus crop to the EU. Well, there you go. Don't we just know a whole lot more about oranges and the growing thereof? And don't forget, if you've got a citrus tree in your garden, don't overwater it because you're only asking for trouble. That was Dion Joubert, and he's a citrus farmer in the Eastern Cape. Stay with us. The Enviro Show. Well, staying in the kitchen, I guess, another big issue in the kitchen around which we may need to just think a little bit differently is that of what to do with cooking oil. Use cooking oil in particular that we so often just pour down the sink and then what happens, all sorts of disastrous things to our water sources. So alternatives, well, on the line to give us some idea of what they could be, we have a gentleman by the name of Craig Waterman, who's the owner, founder, I think, of a, a company called Green Diesel. Hi, Craig. Hi, Nancy. How are you? Excellent. Nice to have you with us. Good. Green Diesel. D- explain. Uh, Green Diesel is a company uh, based in Cape Town, um, and makes, we make um, biodiesel from used cooking oil. Okay. Now, the thing about used cooking oil is that any cooking oil, do you have to be producing vast amounts of it? I mean, what about those of us in our own kitchens who've got used cooking oil? What do we do with it? Okay. The, the biggest problem in South Africa is that uh, domestic... Uh, uh, oil isn't recycled. It invariably ends up uh, going down the drain uh, to wastewater treatment plants or going to landfill. Uh, it would be uh, fantastic if we could uh, recover all that used cooking oil and um, you, uh, turn it into biodiesel. The only used oil that we are able to collect at the moment is from the hospital e- um, industry, uh, where we collect uh, oil from restaurants, hotels, hospitals, fast food outlets and the like. So uh, there's a big portion of the of the oil that's used in South Africa um, in the domestic market that is not recovered. So a hospital? Is there one particular hospital that you...? Uh, no, no. In, uh, hospitals, um, for example, uh, mediclinics, um, uh, government hospitals, they, they all have kitchens, canteens, um, and, we, and basically wherever people congregate, you invariably find food, and if there's food, there's invariably a deep fryer. So um, that, that's, that's uh, the market that we're after. Well, wherever there's a canteen, then there's a chances are that there's going to be quite a lot of used cooking oil. All the people who are not recycling their oil, what are they doing with it? Unfortunately, it is going down the drain and it's, and it's ending up at wastewater treatment plants where obviously the, the water is treated. Um, and it, it, it is a logistical problem to recover that oil. Um, some schools have initiated programs uh, to to recycle, and that's not only um, paper, glass, tin, etc. It, it's also um, the used cooking oil, um, where we provide drums, and the kids can bring the used oil from their homes and and pour it into a larger drum where we collect on a regular basis, whether it's once a week. Or you know, I did I did open by saying this is a bit of a messy one. What sort of condition does the oil come in? It you know it feels like it might be a bit grotty. It it it, it, 
it is a dirty job. Uh, that 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 is for sure. Um, but you don't you don't. It doesn't have to be a, a messy, dirty business. It's how you look after the the used oil, how you transport it, how you decant it. Um, um, it, it just boils down to um, basic hygiene and, and good practice. Just going back to the hospitals and the big canteens, presumably they're using quite a large amount. In the average homeowner, um, you're not going to be using a lot, but at the same time, what do you do with it? Do you sort of wrap it in a piece of newspaper and put it in your bin and then it's out of your, out of sight, out of mind? How do you recommend that the average um, homeowner looks after their oil and gets it to you? Is, is it possible? Yeah, it, it, it is expensive, obviously, to, to bring in one litre or two litres uh, an average household might use that, that kind of volume in, in a month. And so t- to take it to a recycling depot is a responsible thing to do, but it is also an expense. That's why if, if schools, especially junior schools, can introduce um, a, a recycling program also um, for used cooking oil where we can provide a bin, then it, it is it, the, the, the parents dropping off their kids in the morning can drop off their litre or two of oil at the same time and that makes it cost effective. But for us to establish some kind of collection system is, is just totally uh, uneconomical. You know, Craig, this has been obviously been going on for years, for as long as people have been cooking with cooking oil, um, you know, ever since the Roman times. You know, is all the oil to date just been going out into the sea and is it, is it creating a huge problem? Uh, not, not, not so much into the, into the sea anymore. It was previously going to landfill, but, but fortunately... Um, the biodiesel industry has created a demand for the oil. Um, the unfortunate thing that, that happens today is that although there is competition for that used cooking oil and the biodiesel industry forms part of that competition, the other competition comes from um, the animal feed industry uh, and from exporters. Uh, the animal feed industry are, are using the used cooking oil um, in, in animal feed, to obviously feed cows, pigs, cattle, whatever, whatever it is, and the exporters, they're really hurting the biodiesel industry by exporting the oil to, to Europe, the Americas, and, 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 and the like. Um, and so we find that there's a, actually a shortage of used cooking oil in South Africa for biodiesel production. If anybody would like to sort of start, I don't know, a recycling business, can they get in touch with you? I know you're based here in Cape Town, but there must be other people like you elsewhere in the country. Yes, absolutely. Um, They can contact any of the biodiesel companies in South Africa, and they are also professional oil collectors. They're welcome to phone me if they're they're not in the Cape Town or Peninsula. They're welcome to phone me, and I can put them in, in touch, if I can, with people in their local area that collect used cooking oil. Professional oil collectors, eh? Just, uh, we'll give out your details in just a minute. The other thing I'm, I suppose I'm thinking is that when oil has been cooked and it's been heated to a certain degree, does it break down? Does it create sort of any sort of toxicity in itself? Yeah, the, the free fatty acids, as we call it, um, in, increase. Um, and uh, cooking oil used beyond a certain time becomes carcinogenic. Um, and so, yes, it, it is very important that people understand that you cannot use cooking oil indefinitely. Um, there is a period of time, and there are test kits available, but mainly restaurants and the like use test kits to test the oil to see when the oil has actually reached the end of its life. Um, domestic households 
really use the oil maybe once or twice, three times at the most, and before they discard the oil. Um, but it's, it's a catering industry and the hospitality industry that um, it's very mm. important for them to test their oil regularly to know when to discard it. Well, Craig, you did offer. Can we give out your phone number? And which Absolutely. number would you like us to give? Absolutely. My cell number and my office number as well as our website, um, I welcome any calls or any inquiries regarding um, the use or collection of, of used cooking oil. And I will be able, happy to assist anybody. Okay, so your cell number is 082-901-2047. And your office number is? 021-919-2077. Yeah. Okay, 021-919-2076. Well, very best of luck, Craig. And if uh, anybody would like to know more about professional oil collectors in their area, give them a call. 021-919-2166. Otherwise, website is green-diesel.co.za. Green-diesel.co.za. Craig Waterman, thanks a lot. Super, thank you. Well, next and finally, it's our time for our green goodie feature. And as I've been saying, with the electricity prices going up from July the 1st, we just might need to consider all sorts of ways in which we can cut down both the costs and the usage, as they have been doing for some time at the My Green Home Project. You might remember we heard a little bit about that uh, project uh, a while ago on the show with the Nguana family in Pinelands leading by example. Well, this time we've got Sarah Rushmere on the line. She's with the Green Building Council, but she's a flag flyer for the Mine Green Home Project. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Nancy. Good evening. Excellent. Nice to have you with us. So I think, you know, as you rightly point out, that uh, prices of electricity are going to go up next week. So give us some of the tips that they've been using there in the Pinelands house and what can we do? Thanks, Nancy. Yes, it's always a bit of a double whammy. The tariff increase goes up while you're not watching, and then you know, on top of that, you've got winter warming. Um, and try as we all might, we do like to be warm, and I think sometimes it's just, you know, we have to find alternative ways to doing it now because it just, it's just too, too uh, expensive. So I think that the first principle is to put heat where you really need it, and that means everything from layering up your own body rather than heating up the whole room and, and closing heat into the house. You know, I, re- I remember my grandfather's house, it was about closing the curtains at the end of the day to trap the warmth into the house um, at the end of the day. And those very old-fashioned techniques that don't cost you a cent are still the kinds of things that the Ngawana family are implementing at the moment. And their behavior changes alone have, are saving them 33% on energy. And now with a, a retrofit of spending some money on, on some interventions like... And it can be very simple things like closing the gaps around your windows and doors where the cold air just, you know, comes rushing in or the hot air gets sucked out. And so insulating your home can be um, as cheap as buying that, that, that sort of rubbery tape called weather stripping to close up the gaps around your window. To Lisa's uh, a, a room in, in the house, I think one is the coldest room. It's the sort of the southeast facing room and it's the coldest. So we literally, with a couple of hundred rand, just sealed up all the gaps around the windows in her room and that's making a big difference. So instead of using her electric heater, she's now got some fantastic warm bedding from Woolies and wrapping up herself and using a hot water bottle or something that is going to you know, heat her body, which is where the heat is needed, rather than heating up the whole room with an electric heater the whole night. Yeah. So Oof. there are lots of yeah. like, simple and very cost-effective ways of insulating and warming, you know, putting the heat where, really where you need it, rather than heating up the whole room. I mean, you know, the era of... of 
um, and the floor heating and very inefficient heating things like that are, are just are, are gone yeah. all of us I think but it's a bit like the boiling the, the full kettle principle when all you want is exactly. one cup yeah exactly mm. exactly you know, um, just, the other thing that the, yeah. the thing Gowanas are using, which Dave, um, it's more of one of the invest to save ideas, but it's it's a closed combustion fireplace, where instead of sending the heat up the chimney like most of our fireplaces do, um, it actually retains the heat inside the home, which is immensely effective, and they are absolutely loving that particular technology too. Closed combustion fireplace. What does it look like? Well, this one looks, in, in fact particularly stunning. It looks like a sort of a, a retro, it's got a sort of a, uh, what's the word, um, sort of a modern, um, what's that era? I've, I've, I've gone deco, blank. Art Deco? Yes, Art Deco mm. feel to it, which is stunning. Um, uh, uh, Bula actually calls it her Ferrari red uh, dream machine. <laughs> um, it's a, it's a, it's, 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 this one uses wood pellets. So it's in fact, it's a biomass renewable resource. So they're in fact using not only they've got renewable energy on the roof, but they've got they're using it in their lounge, and it it feeds the hot air into the other rooms of the home as well. So it controls the hot air circulation around the home. Now, Sarah, before you go mm. on, um, I, I'm sure people are thinking, hmm, when I can get a closed combustion fireplace? Is all this info on the My Green Home it is, website? It is. Plus, some really use, useful resources like you know everything from Builders Warehouse Guide to how to draft proof a door and understanding electric heating and you know, there are a whole lot of different resources on there for people to draw on. And then Gowanas have had the advantage of, of having a lot of the sponsors, so they've done a whole range of different things all at once that are really saving them half their electricity bill uh, already. Yeah, so just um, 30, 30 odd something percent, That's and especially mm. with prices going up. And, you know, every time you say electric heater, I can just see the dollar signs. You know, you yes, put exactly. on an electric heater for five yeah. minutes and you've broken the bank. It's mm. quite scary stuff, yeah. isn't it? Um, just one other thing that I think whilst we're talking about Nguana is I think that the, you've still got a competition running? Absolutely, very much so. I, you explain? Yeah. Um, essentially, every week we, there's a different theme. And this week the theme is just to show us how you're saving electricity at home with a simple selfie photograph or a picture of you or family members doing something that, that is an energy-saving way of keeping yourself warm. And if you send that in to us, um, then you also not only are, are standing a chance to win some fabulous prizes from our amazing sponsors, um, but, but one family at the end of this in about four weeks' time, uh, through a lucky draw as well, is going to win an entire green home makeover for themselves, just like the Nguanas have won. So it's a significant mm -hmm. prize. And, um, and it can be as simple as lighting an incense stick and just testing to see if you've got drafts around your doors and windows. You know, there are all kinds of simple ways of testing these things. So you light an incense stick and you walk around your house witching, watching which way... Yeah. The smoke well, blows. Especially around the doors and windows to see. It so clearly shows where the air is being pulled out or being pulled in. But usually it's being pulled out because the hot air is being sucked out um, to the coldness outside. And it's, it's very, you know, the, the smoke from the incense stick shows that very clearly. Okay. If you look at the webisode, there's a, what they call webisodes, there's a little mm. audiovisual clip, a uh, little video of what the Nguanas have done at their home on the website. Um, and you can see them doing this technique and it's really worked for them. It's a bit like sort of black magic, really, doesn't it? Walking around with a little <laughs> incense stick. And I suppose one shouldn't be using a candle because candles are petrol-based. And, oh, there's so much to know. And there is so much to learn. And so let me give out the website again. Sarah, thank you so much for all those fascinating little tips. I'm going to give out the website if you'd like to know more. And thank you and stay warm. Thank you so much. Thank Lovely. you. There you go. Sarah Rushmere, well, if you would like to take part in that competition, all you've got to do is take yourself a, a selfie of yourself doing whatever it is that keeps you warm and pop it through to them and uh, you could be in line for one of those prizes. Check the site. It's mygreenhome.org.za, mygreenhome.org.za.
ZA. Well, that's it. Brings us to a close once again. So thank you very much for listening. Thanks very much to the team, Kim Winter and Rob Parkin, and I'm Nancy Richards. Next up, it's time for news and music with Mr. News and Music himself, Stephen Kirker. Hi, Stephen. <laughs>